Hello and welcome to this podcast from Conway Hall, London, where ethics matter. To find out more about our programme of talks and concerts, visit conwayhall.org.uk or find us on social media. In this online talk, author Therese Johnson examines the history of feminism over the last 40 years, arguing that black British feminism's central role in shaping the movement has been marginalised through narratives which repeatedly position white women at the centre of the story. So I'm going to be talking um, mostly about my the kind of research um, that informed my book today, um, which is coming out um, this month. So I thought that I would start a little bit with some context um, in terms of uh, why I wrote the book, uh, when I wrote the book, and um, some thoughts around kind of where we are at the moment. Um, because I, first off to say I've been working on this, um, this research for quite a long time. It emerged out of my PhD research, which I started in 2008. <laughs> so um, over a decade ago, and um, I finished my PhD in 2015. I was doing it part time, and um, the PhD itself grew out of my involvement with feminist communities since the early 2000s, both as um, kind of involved with um, various activist communities and also as kind of as academic knowledge. So I did an MA in gender studies in the mid 2000s. Um, in terms of the activism that I was involved with, I was part of organizing um, Ladyfest festivals around that time and involved with some other feminist and queer um, networks around the time. Um, and I, through that experience, uh, was involved in some quite intense conflicts and um, debates around racism within white dominated uh, feminist and queer spaces. Um, and um, I was part of a group called Feminist Activist Forum for a while, where we had a what we called a DIY feminist history group, um, where we spent time in the feminist library, looking in the archives um, of the recent feminist past, um, particularly the 1970s and 1980s, which made me really interested in um, that alongside doing my, my MA when I also learned about um, kind of particularly around black British feminism in the 1980s, I was really interested in that time period and kind of delving into those archives um, to learn about um, that history and the history of, of black feminism in this country um, and also the many discussions and conflicts around racism and other differences between women that took place around that time. And I'll talk a bit more about that um, in a moment. So. I think, uh, I think as many of us who have observed or been part of debates about racism in feminism, but also elsewhere, um, are aware that these tend to be very kind of circular and repetitive in that the same points keep having to be made over and over again. And, and um, often there's a sense that nothing has really been learned and, and we're going around in circles. Um, but at the same time, I do, um, I wanted to reflect a little bit on where we are um, at this moment, because um, I think it, I've really seen over the you know over the last twelve years that I've been been thinking and and working on this, um, the extent to which um, racism and whiteness are discussed within feminism and also generally within um, kind of uh, within the liberal public sphere um, has changed a lot. 
over the over the decade and and also feminism as well and i don't want to like be too kind of technology determinist but to say that it's all about social media but i certainly think that the emergence of social media and the way that that's been taken up both by social justice organizers as well as by the right um, has had a huge impact in terms of uh, the visibility and engagement um, with uh, both feminist and, and kind of anti-racist arguments. Um, but I think, you know, alongside that kind of shift, um, there are also things that are that are consistent, such as the ways in which um, messages kind of get distorted and co-opted and commodified. And I think, you know, we saw that a lot a few years ago uh, in the way that feminism and in particular a kind of neoliberal feminism was suddenly very popular around uh, 2016, 2017. Um, and we have seen it this year as well in terms of how um, specifically the Black Lives Matter movement and anti-racist politics, um, how that's been taken up kind of mainstream attempts to, uh, to commodify and, and co-opt. Uh, those politics. Um, and of course, Black Lives Matter has been a, of huge significance this year and has pushed conversations around anti-Black racism and white supremacy and whiteness into the mainstream in a, in a um, unprecedented way. Um, so it does feel uh, quite a strange moment for my book to come out now at the end of, of this year, which has been so uh, kind of heartbreaking and overwhelming in a lot of ways. Um, because the, the plan was never that this book was going to come out now. Like it's, it, there were some delays as well. It, it was meant to come out in May, but it got delayed because of COVID. So um, yeah, I, it feels quite strange to, to have this as the moment when the book comes out, because I'm frankly not quite sure we need another book about whiteness right now, because there's quite a lot that have come out in the last few years. Um, but yeah, I think we're also in one of those moments where, um, we have seen this kind of upsurge in attention around uh, racism and around white supremacy, but we're in a moment where there's a kind of danger of that receding from view again, um, from, from kind of mainstream view and mainstream attention. And um, I guess I'm speaking very much to, um, to like white people who identify as liberal, left-wing or progressive in some way, when I'm saying that, you know, there's a lot of work that we need to do and that that's very urgent right now. And it's really important that we keep our attention on that. Um, so, you know, I think it's been a year that there's been a lot of talk about whiteness, um, but at the same time, uh, in ways, uh, you know, white people, we can be very good at talking about, saying we need to talk about whiteness or doing it in ways that aren't really accompanied by, meaningful action or which focuses unhelpfully on um, kind of white feelings, get stuck in white guilt or in defensiveness. So yeah, so that's kind of um, setting a little bit of the context about um, the talk that I'm going to give, which is focused on the, the specific research that I've done around how whiteness functions within feminist communities and theorizing and some of what I have learned um, about how that can be resisted. Um, so I think it's important to say clearly that my book is not an original critique of whiteness and feminism, but rather it's a response 
um, and an attempt to act on critiques of whiteness within feminism. So critiques by feminists of color that have been made for a very long time. Um, but I'm kind of attempting to really um, hear such critiques, uh, take them seriously, engage with them, and then think about what that, uh, um, you know, how to, how to act on them. Um, so, you know, from my perspective as a white feminist and, um, you know, looking at kind of white dominated um, feminist uh, spaces. So a lot of what I'm saying in the book is actually not um, original in that sense. It's, um, but it's an engagement with black feminist and feminists of color literature on, on racism, whiteness and gender, and then applying that to the contemporary context um, and looking at some um, particularly kind of academic, um, academic theorizing around um, well, around feminism more generally, and also um, kind of liberal popular debates around feminism. Um, so my work is, yeah, it's really fundamentally indebted to, um, to black feminist um, analysis and, and um, radical feminists of color. So I'll um, draw attention to, you know, a few of these sources in the talk, but of course there's uh, much more detail in the book. So, um, yeah, so maybe, uh, Scott, if you could move to the next slide, please. Thank you. So when I, oh, yeah, the next one after that. So when I started um, doing this research, um, one of the things- Sorry, we didn't test this, hang on. That's <laughs> all right. I'll just, um, it's fine. I can just keep talking, but hopefully it will um, come up soon. There we go, the, that one. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, yeah, so so when I started doing this research and looking at the histories around of discussions about racism uh, within British feminist politics and theorizing, one of the things that really struck me and that I've kind of, um, alluded to already is the kind of circularity and repetition of these debates and the sense that we keep having the same conversations over and over and and a kind of real sense of the harm that that does in terms of how that's uh you know whiteness functioning as a form of ignorance a, a kind of form of forgetting and um how it um how it functions to kind of exhaust um exhaust the debates exhaust feminist or color, like kind of shut the conversation down and, and move on and then we have to do it all over again. So I actually, I begin the book with this quote from um, Jan McKenley, who um, was very involved with the women's liberation movement in the 1970s and 80s. Um, she, um, so she was a black feminist and she is a black feminist. And um, yeah, just this quote um, from, which is from 1980 um, issue of Spare Rib, which you might uh, be familiar with. It's a very well-known women's liberation movement um, magazine that was published throughout the 70s and 80s and into the 90s as well. Um, where she said, I'm beginning to feel invisible again within the women's liberation movement, having to work myself up to making heavy statements that will embarrass sisters in meetings. I can see the eyebrows going up already, not racism, that old chestnut again, it's so boring. Well, if it's boring for you, white sister, I've got no monopoly on dealing with racism. It's your problem too. Um, 
And I think, you know, this really speaks to that kind of exhaustion and the, um, the frustration with having to kind of continually bring this issue up and it being seen as a kind of the responsibility of, of black women and women of color to, to raise this. And, you know, this was 1980 and already at that point, you know, she's saying this, this we've had this debate so many times. So, um, so this repetition and circularity is why I decided to focus on narratives. Um, so my research looks at is a kind of detailed analysis of the kinds of narratives that are constructed about racism um, within feminist movements um, in kind of white centered um, feminist literature. And I do this because I think um, we can learn a lot about how race and racism and whiteness are understood by looking at how it's discussed or not, or like um, how it's incorporated into kind of the overall narratives of feminism that um, these uh, this literature tells. So, um, yeah, so just to kind of define the terms a little bit, um, when I talk about white feminism, I'm drawing on a, um, a definition that originates from critiques by feminists of color of white feminist politics that don't attend to race. And I often use Razia Aziz's um, definition from, um, I think, the early 1990s, because I find it really useful, um, where she describes white feminism as any feminism which comes from a white perspective and universalizes it. And it subsists through a failure to consider both the wider social and political context of power in which feminist utterances and actions take place and the ability of feminism to influence that context. So I think this is really useful because it really highlights how this is not some kind of essentialist um, um, idea that you know white feminism is anything that white feminists do, um, but rather it's about a, a theoretical and political perspective which anyone can promote or disrupt. So you know not all white feminists have to espouse a white feminism and equally. Um, you don't necessarily need to be white to espouse a white feminism. And I think in, obviously this is really important distinction because it means that white feminism can be dismantled. And it's often a term that's used to identify a kind of narrow um, liberal gender only lens to women's equality, you know, often framed specifically around that language of equality with men. Um, but in the um, literature and the sources that I look at uh, in my research, a lot of the more kind of contemporary literature, there, there is a more sophisticated analysis, which, you know, has um, emerged as a result of um, anti-racist critiques um, and with the development of concepts such as intersectionality. So there isn't that same kind of complete erasure or complete lack of awareness around race usually. Um, so therefore I tend to, I write more about a white-centered feminism. So um, I'm called white-centered feminism is a, is a feminism that is kind of positions itself as knowledgeable about race and difference and as having taken anti-racist critiques on board. Um, and so in different ways, and it varies of course, how much to, to what extent this is done, but it incorporates an awareness of racial difference and an acknowledgement of women of color's work and experiences, but it still centers white women as the normative and central subjects of feminism. Um, 
And I think it is worth saying as well, um, and you can move to the next slide, please, Scott, um, that in talking about the dominance of white and white-centered feminisms, um, it's important not to kind of overdetermine their dominance, um, as this does a disservice to feminists of color and um, to feminisms of color and their significance and influence, and you know struggles over analytical frameworks and the priorities between differently positioned women have been continuous features of feminist politics um, in Britain and, and elsewhere. Um, and I think it's also really important to be clear that, um, that black feminisms and uh, women of color's thought and activism comes from a lot of different trajectories, have been shaped by many different roots, contexts and motivations. There's often a kind of within kind of white centered um, understandings, there's this, um, misunderstanding uh, or reduction of black, femini black feminism as somehow a response to white feminism. Um, but I think uh, that's why I put up this quote from Akwugo, Emma Julu and Francesca Sobanda who write that black women have always been leaders of women's liberation. Black feminism is in no way an afterthought or, derivati or a derivative of white feminism, but rather a radical praxis for the liberation of everyone, starting with black women. Um, so I emphasize this um, explicitly in order to, um, you know, just to say that while my work focuses and dissects the whiteness which dominates certain sites of feminism, this whiteness shouldn't be assumed to be kind of overly determining of feminist politics or theory as a whole. And at the same time, there's no denying that whiteness does um, remain structurally dominant, particularly within uh, kind of well-resourced and powerful institutions, such as in the in feminist academia and in popular publishing and the liberal press. Um, so that's kind of where I where I focus my analysis. Um, so yeah, I'm apologies for those for those that this is kind of very familiar ground, but I do think it's also useful to be clear on. Um, what we mean when we're talking about whiteness, because often there is confusion around this term and this kind of um, conflation or this idea that it's just some kind of description of white people. Um, but it's similar to like the distinction that I just discussed between white feminism and white feminists. Um, whiteness is about a structure of power. You know, it's about how the world is shaped to fit white people, how our social institutions take white people as the norm. Um, how white people get to move through the world as if we are just people while, while everybody else has a race. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a system that's been shaped by uh, colonial histories and it prioritizes white forms of knowledge, white feelings, white comfort, and it's imposed on everyone as if it's universal. Um, and if you could go to the next slide, please. Um, I like this definition from Heidi Mirza, which comes from the um, 1997 collection, Black British Feminism, uh, where she describes whiteness as that powerful place that makes invisible or reappropriates things, people and places it does not want to see or hear. And then through misnaming, renaming or not naming at all, invents the truth. What we are told is normal, neutral, universal, simply becomes the way it is. Um, and I think this is, it's really useful because it speaks to the way in which, um, you know, whiteness functions to maintain white people as a kind of neutral standard within society. And it also points to whiteness as a form of dominant knowledge. Um, this idea that it invents, 
it invents the truth. And in the uh, in my work, I draw on Charles Mills's um, work on um, kind of concept of white ignorance, which I find really useful for thinking about how whiteness functions. And he, he argues that whiteness is a fundamentally faulty knowledge system based on a systemic form of ignorance about racism. Um, and in using that term ignorance, it's not um, he's not just pointing to a kind of uh, what he calls the absence of true knowledge, or but it's a it's a false belief. It's something quite arrogant and aggressive. It's an ignorance that, um, in his words, fights back. Um, so it's an ignorance that, when it is presented with uh, with evidence which contradicts uh, kind of white knowledge, it enables white people to reject this knowledge as not possible or true. So this ignorance is a um, is required to uphold. Um, white supremacy. And um, to kind of move on towards thinking about how this functions within feminist communities, there are distinct gender dimensions to how white ignorance operates. And um, I find Maria Lagona's description of white women's infantilization of judgment, um, that's a, a quote from her, um, when it comes to racism to be very kind of evocative and apt. Um, she writes about how, you know, when confronted with an anti-racist critique or called to um, ask to be accountable for racism or think about um, our complicities in racism, um, Lagonis writes about how white women take, and this is a quote, flight into those characteristics of childhood that excuse ignorance and confusion. Um, and as Lagunas then points out, points out, this isn't, you know, this is not, this is not innocent in any way. It's actually a form of racism because it shields white women uh, from having to be accountable for racism. To say that, uh, oh, I just don't have the capacity. I don't understand. Um, like, basically refusing to be held accountable um, for for complicity in racism. Um, so this is very much connected then to this idea of white innocence, which um, is one of the ways in which racial power is maintained. And this is, um, is very prominent within uh, white dominated feminist communities, which is why that became a, a central analytical framework in my book. And I'm drawing here on um, work by Shireen Razak and also um, and, and other work as well that I discuss more in the book, but particularly um, the 2016 book by Gloria Becker, White Innocence. Um, Becker talks about the, the kind of connection between whiteness and innocence through an exploration of how it, she writes about uh, Holland um, and how the white Dutch sense of self as innocent and just is rooted in a paradoxical process of colonial racialized othering and a simultaneous denial of the significance of race. So often um, uh, we talk about white ignorance as something that's um, tends to, uh, sorry, in, white innocence as something that um, tends to be uh, particularly, that kind of white liberal people tend to be particularly attached to because um, they tend to see themselves as, as good white people, distinguished from the bad white racists. Um, so, and that functions a lot within feminism as a, as a kind of politics that's generally committed to 
kind of social justice and, and progressive ends and, you know, wanting to end different forms of oppression. Um, feminist communities have a particularly deep investment um, in being good, quote unquote. Um, and in her work, um, Vecca, when she writes about white feminist academics, she said, she writes how uh, they tend to respond to frank discussions about race with anxiety, fear, avoidance, and feelings of guilt. And um, this is something that um, there's a, a really brilliant article by Sarita Srivastava from 2005, I think, uh, based on research with Canadian feminist organizations uh, called You're Calling Me a Racist! Uh, exclamation mark. Um, and I think as she demonstrates and as anyone who has been involved in these kinds of debates within feminist communities, claims to innocence are endemic uh, whenever white feminists are confronted with racism. And um, anti-racist critiques tend to be met with defensiveness, denials, anger, and often tears. And Srivastava draws attention to how this, um, how this has kind of, um, this is connected to kind of colonial legacies of white femininity as rooted in racial innocence and superiority and how that intertwines then with the kind of feminist um, ideas of justice um, and equality. Um, and she describes feminist communities and particularly white dominated feminist communities as overly preoccupied with um, morality and self. Um, although I would say we can talk about how that applies, not, not just to feminist communities, but kind of to um, left liberal progressive communities more generally. Um, and of course, so one of the problems with, with white innocence is that it, it often leads to white people expending more energy on asserting our innocence and kind of trying to, to find a way to be innocent rather than learning about and challenging racism. Um, so in one of the chapters in the book, I take more of an historical um, approach and look at um, anti-racist feminisms in 1980s Britain. And it's a very selective account um, and it's quite London centric. I will um, admit to that for sure. Um, but I was really interested in, in um, how much there is that feminists can learn from the 1980s in Britain. Um, when I, you know, I, I mentioned at the start, spending time in the archives in the feminist library and the women's library and so on. Um, you know, there were so many discussions about racism. There was so much activism that was really starting to think about um, like building solidarities across, uh, across race and taking race seriously within, within feminism. Um, but actually within dominant accounts, this period is often narrated as a period of decline within white-centered feminist histories. Um, because the women's liberation movement, which was a very white dominated movement, had its kind of heyday in the 1970s. And um, so the, the 80s are often described as like a period of decline of British feminism, but actually what that erases is a lot of um, black feminist histories, a lot of um, coalitional work, um, a lot of kind of exciting, important anti-racist feminist work that took place in that time. Um, and that was really the, the period of emergence of black British feminism as an intellectual project, which um, it like, 
There, there's of course much longer histories of, of black women and Asian women's activism in Britain um, and kind of histories of anti-colonial, anti-racist movements before that. But it was in the kind of late 70s, early 80s that you get a kind of self-named Black British Feminist Project. And um, if you could move to the next slide, please. Um, there are a number of very um, influential texts that were published in the early 1980s, such as Hazel Carby's White Woman Listen, Black Feminism and the Boundaries of Sisterhood, and also Valerie Amos and Pratiba Palmer's um, Challenging Imperial Feminism, which both set out to define uh, Black British feminism, define kind of Black feminist priorities in the British context. And they also, as you can tell by their titles, um, it um, involved a critique of white feminists. Um, and I put a quote up here from, um, from Carby. So this was published in the, uh, the Empire Strikes Back in 1982, uh, which is a very influential um, book by the Center for Cultural Studies in Birmingham. Um, white women in the British women's liberation movement are extraordinarily reluctant to see themselves in the situation of being oppressors as they feel this will be at the expense of concentrating upon being oppressed. Um, consequently, the involvement of British women in imperialism and colonialism is repressed and the benefits that they as whites gain from oppression of black people ignored. Forms of imperialism are simply identified as aspects of an all embracing patriarchy rather than sets of social relations in which white women hold positions of power. By virtue of their race. So we can see here how this critique of uh, white feminists um, implies, um, although the word like innocence I don't think was specifically used, it's definitely alluding to that, uh, to the way in which um, white women kind of refuse, refused to see them, white women in the women's liberation movement largely kind of refused to see themselves as in any way um, implicated in racism and were very defensive when that was raised. Um, so yeah, so as a result of, of critiques such as this and a lot of um, activist, um, yeah, like interventions and um, debates, um, there were a lot of discussions about differences between women in the early 1980s in, in the British feminist politics. Um, and these conflicts, there's, um, they're kind of evidenced and documented in, in the pages of Spare Rib and uh, with the different kind of women's liberation newsletters from that time in Feminist Review and also in, in, the, in an outright women's newspaper, uh, which I'll mention a bit more in just a minute. And these critiques and these debates did result in a changed perspective and politics within white dominated groups to, to an extent. There was certainly, um, like I don't wanna overstate how, how, how much uh, white feminists kind of changed or took, took these critiques on board, but there was certainly within the broader movement, um, a shift towards broader understandings of gender, depression, uh, gender oppression and that that you know black feminism had a, a very influential role in terms of centering an analysis of gender race and class oppression as interlocked or um intersecting um 
and also bringing in an analysis of the state as oppressive, you know, looking at issues around policing, nationality law and immigration and social care, the racism that, that Black and Asian children were experiencing in schools. And if you could go to the next slide, um, I just put up some pictures from Outright Women's newspaper, which is um, something I write about more in the book as an example of an anti-racist feminist project where women of color and white women work together. And this was a newspaper which was published monthly between 1982 and 1988 uh, by a multiracial collective of women with an anti-imperialist, anti-racist, anti-capitalist stance, also coupled with a kind of radical feminist politics. So it was really um, groundbreaking in that time and played a significant role in carving out space for this kind of coalitional work between feminists of color and white feminists, which was crucial to the development of broad-based anti-racist feminist politics. And part of this work that they did as part, as the, collect, the outright collective um, did was also uh, involved a commitment to examining the hierarchical relations within the movement, um, including on the part of women who held power um, by virtue of being white, middle-class, non-disabled um, or straight. So yeah, um, I think there's so much that we can learn now, particularly in this moment, you know, this was a newspaper that was very, uh, you know, it was published in, in the era of Thatcher and all that that um, entailed in terms of anti-migrant policy, policies and crackdowns on protests and so on. And, and I think, um, you know, this, this, it's such an interesting history. And I don't want to romanticize it and kind of be naive about it or um, suggest that, um, you know, all white feminists did actually address whiteness and racism and there was some kind of beautiful harmony. Like it was, it was, uh, I, I don't think that's the way it was. It was hard work, um, but there was some important work that was done. Um, but again, um, you know, outright, you seldom hear about it in histories told about British feminism's recent past. You're much more likely to hear about spare rib, for example. So um, I think maybe if you could actually turn off the slides uh, for a bit, because um, I don't have any for a little bit. <coughs> um, okay, so, ah, sorry. So, what my book does then is to interrogate this erasure of anti-racist feminist histories and examine the ways in which feminist whiteness has kind of asserted itself in more contemporary times, particularly within academia and in the liberal public sphere, which I think are two significant sites where feminist thought and discourse has been institutionalized and gained increasing power. Um, so, yeah, so if we start with the premise that whiteness was, while never kind of wholly, but significantly destabilized within some of these activist and academic communities um, in the 1980s, what I suggest in looking at the more contemporary texts is that there's been a kind of recentering towards towards whiteness that has taken place, particularly within, within as I say, academia and um, kind of liberal popular feminism. So in two chapters of the book, I look at academic, academic feminist texts, um, which focus on feminism itself as a subject. So I picked my sample, it's, you know, it's quite a small sample, it's eight books in total, but it was pretty much, it was most books that were published in the, so at a time period 2009 to 2017, 
books that were published uh, in Britain, uh, which focus on feminism itself as a subject. Um, so kind of examining what feminism is, what its priorities are, or, you know, like takes feminism itself as its, as its subject. And I look at how these construct their narratives about the recent feminist past. So I found when I looked at um, these texts that there was a significant distinction across them where one group um, in these narratives positioned racial exclusions within feminism as something that existed mainly in the past. And then the, the second group acknowledged racism within feminism as a continuing problem. So starting with the first group, um, they, whether kind of explicitly or implicitly narrated a transformation of, um, of feminism from a kind of white or ignorant past to a race critical and diverse present. Um, and I would say like to an extent, um, you know, this does reflect a, a kind of accurate change within what we might call a hegemonic feminism or white centered feminism like there is undoubtedly more attention to these questions, to questions of race within um, white-led and white-authored theory and politics today than they used to be. But I think what um, my concern is and what I was looking at was what these narratives, um, like how, how these narratives were framed and what they enabled. And and significantly, um, I think when you frame racism and whiteness within feminism as something belonging to the past, the, the logical conclusion is that this suggests there's no need to continue to discuss them in the present. And in some of the books, this led then to race and racism being sidelined again in quite a whole scale way as somehow kind of peripheral to feminist theorizing and politics. So, <clears throat> um, you know, an intersectional analysis being applied without um, attention to, to race or to white supremacy or um, kind of structures, a structural analysis which just includes capitalism and patriarchy but not racism um, or um, theorizing of difference um, without looking at race or without engaging with feminists of color's work. Um, in other cases, racism is discussed and considered more uh, with some more depth, but as something that exists only kind of out there in the world as a, as a structural inequality, but not as something which also exists in here within feminist politics or within feminist academia. And, um, and specifically in relation to academia, I think, you know, there's, there's a silence around um, feminist academia's collusions and investments in, a, in the white academy. Um, yeah, so, so although these, I'm not suggesting that this narrative is the same in, across all of these books, but um, they did have in common a kind of sense that there has been a shift towards a race critical feminism. And um, yeah, and through positioning um, contemporary white feminists as well versed in race analysis and through the descriptions of contemporary feminist politics as, as inclusive and as diverse and as attentive to difference, uh, white feminist racism uh, kind of becomes constructed as history. And I'm drawing on Sarah Ahmed's work here on how um, 
um, what she calls like the non-performativity non of, of white anti-racism, where um, when I say that this kind of acknowledgement of past white ignorance accompanied by acclaimed race awareness in the present functions to declare a transcendence of the white feminist sub, sub the white feminist. So from, you know, from, from ignorance to knowledge, from be, having been ignorant to having been knowledge, not to be knowledgeable, um, is a way of kind of proclaiming that contemporary white feminists have kind of transcended uh, the position of the racist subject. And the reason, so this kind of goes back to this idea of white innocence because, um, and why it functions as a form of racial power, because the critiques of racism and, and of white ignorance could be seen to kind of destabilize white women's perceived uh, quote unquote natural place at the center of feminist movements. It, it's crucial um, to maintain white women's place at the center of those movements for for um, white white innocence to be reestablished. So this is, um, I argue, where we see a kind of constant push to move on from confronting evidence of racism and whiteness, something which continues to exist within feminist theorizing and politics. Um, and then in the books that that do look at, um, who do see race and whiteness as important issues and that kind of do give um, substantial attention to racism and women of color's marginalization within feminism. Um, these books not, I would say not coincidentally, were books that were published more recently within the sample. So they were books that have been published between 2015 and 2017, which I suggest um, has to do with the fact that there's, you know, there was uh, a lot of discussion about intersectionality and about um, anti-racism within activist feminist communities in the early 2010s. Um, I'll actually say a little bit more about that in, the, in a minute, so I won't say more about that now, but, you know, there was more debates around these issues and therefore these books um, take these issues more seriously. Um, so, yeah, I think these books like have a more kind of complex analysis um, and importantly, the kind of increased attention to race and difference that they see as being part of contemporary feminist communities is not taken as a sign that white dominance within feminism has been overcome, uh, but just that it's being given more attention by white feminists. So these narratives kind of emphasize continuity rather than transformation um, in terms of the existence of racism within feminist communities, uh, which enables a kind of more honest approach to considering uh, white dominance. However, what I did find was that um, one of the one what kind of happened was that racism within feminism got constructed as somehow inevitable, uh, which in turn kind of can encourage a, a kind of complacency in terms of actually challenging racism. And one of the ways in which this was done in these books was through an assumption that women of color constitute a minority interest group within feminism. So through processes of minoritization, um, like women of color were constructed as a kind of a separate group from, from white women. And white women centering within feminism is still perceived as kind of natural and inevitable and based on a kind of idea that because white people have, are a numerical majority in Britain and 
in Europe and in the West more broadly, that means that um, it's kind of natural that white women should be at the center of feminist politics. Um, of course, this construction uh, of a kind of majority and minority um, as, as kind of natural can only be done from a, a historical perspective, which doesn't consider the country's colonial history and the central role that race has played in shaping ideas of the nation and who is included and who's excluded. And it, by, this, by a similar token, the framing of women of color as, as minority constituencies, as a minority constituency within feminism, I, I, again, evades examination of the power relations between the center and the margin. So here I'm drawing on work by Gail Lewis and Yasmin Gunaratnam and Avtabra who discuss, um, who kind of theorize how process of, processes of minoritization in relation to race um, kind of disguises uh, the power relationships between uh, that's that are involved in kind of constructing the nation as 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 one of majorities and minorities and similarly um, that functions in a, in a similar way within feminist politics so ultimately in these books while they highlight race problems as kind of ongoing they don't really address white feminists need to kind of be accountable or work against racism because it's kind of seen as, as an inevitable feature. Um, so women of color are discussed as facing additional barriers and issues um, to those faced by white women, um, but it doesn't really, these narratives don't really address white women's roles in perpetuating racism. Um, so I'm going to move on because um, I'm not quite sure how long I've been talking because I know we said four to five minutes, but we didn't start right at three. So I think uh, if you have any idea, please um, maybe send me a message. Um, but I will continue. I will wrap up soon. So I also look at, um, at popular feminism in the book. I look at um, for instance, Kathleen Moran's book on, called How to Be a Woman. Uh, okay, timing's okay. Sorry about that. I'm not gonna talk about that here, but um, I'm just gonna say a little bit about the kind of intersection, intersectionality and privilege debates that took place within the, within the liberal public sphere. Uh, not just the liberal public sphere, it was also took place in, in the, like the right-wing press and so on. Um, but my focus is very much on, on a kind of liberal whiteness. And I use The Guardian as a case study um, because The Guardian hosted a lot of this discussion. So this was around 2012 2000 to 2014 and was a response to debates that were happening on social media and um, that were happening, uh, you know, led by black feminist activists. There was the Black Feminist UK group, which was very um, active uh, from 2010 to around 2014 um, that instigated a lot of these um, debates and um, yeah and led to kind of intersectionality entering uh, mainstream discourse and what what I found in kind of examining how the Guardian covered this and the kind of you know, how their kind of regular columnists talked about this. Um, you'd find that the regular kind of white feminist columnists 
would gesture towards the importance of intersectionality while at the same time kind of ridiculing it and constructing those who were arguing in favor of intersectional approaches. Um, and it, it's important to bear in mind the kind of racialized implications here as Twitter, you know, Twitter bullies or well-known white feminists. Um, and these, you know, the, the language of kind of silencing and abuse um, came, came up very often in these discussions. And we can see that there were kind of continuities there in terms of um, right-wing attacks on social justice politics and the way that these debates were also framed within the liberal press. And I think looking at the Guardian's coverage over these years and since then, we can see that in fact, it did change a lot. And there is a lot more diversity and intersectional analysis in how it covers feminist politics, feminist activism, um, and I've so I've I actually have looked at Guardian articles about feminism since the early 2000s, and there is a huge shift. Like it was incredibly white um, for you know for the first from the early 2000s until around 2010. And then there's been a, a kind of huge shift in, in terms of the kind of representational politics um, and, and the kind of perspective taken as well in terms of incorporating more of a, an intersectional perspective. So this is an important development, but it's also important to pay attention to the kind of racialized dynamics of how this transformation has played out. And what I argue is that the increased adoption of intersectionality and we see how this increased adoption of intersectionality, both as a term and as a perspective, was done alongside a kind of dismissal of feminist of color's work to get it on the agenda in the first place. And the white feminist columnists are kind of portrayed as having developed an intersectional analysis of their own accord, which then helps maintain their credibility. So, we can see how the, the intersectionality and privilege debates illustrate how the difference, uh, how difference can be incorporated into a white liberal framework uh, and even kind of welcomed as long as the white people involved don't have to give up any power. So different perspectives are accommodated only up to the point where they, um, where they start to threaten white hegemony and entitlement. And you know when that point is reached, that's when you start getting into the language of, of kind of bullying and silencing. And I think there's a lot of continuities in terms of um, debates around um, transphobia and like um, no platforming and all of those things that um, are being discussed in the, in the public sphere a lot more now. Um, so yeah, so so I think the Guardian's response to anti-racist challenged um, challenge can be characterised as a form of kind of liberal co-option and diffusion. So I'm just going to finish off by um, talking briefly about um, the argument I make in the final chapter of the book, uh, which um, which is called feminist complicities, and where I argue that it's um, you know, it's urgent for white feminists to resist this attachment to innocence. And I am very much addressing myself here too. Like I am, I'm intimately aware of the kind of the pull of this, uh, of this desire to kind of feel innocent from racism and, um, and how that takes many, many forms. So it's important to kind of be constantly vigilant about how it's operating. And, um, and, 
So I'm drawing here on the work of Shireen Razak, who I mentioned earlier. And actually, yeah, Scott, could you put up the last slide? Um, who argues that um, that feminists, and she actually is talking about women more generally and not just white women, um, but she looks at feminist communities and interrogates the ways that women are invested in not seeing themselves as complicit in other women's oppression and how that damages um, solidarity, how it hinders us from really addressing the roots of oppression. Um, and I think this is so this is so important for thinking about um, all forms of oppression, but like specifically in relation to whiteness. I think as long as you're engaging with anti-racist work from a position of wanting to be seen as innocent from racism, this is likely to reproduce and reinforce uh, whiteness and white dominance. So um, Rezak, um, this is great quote from her that um, I'll read out, as long as we see ourselves as not implicated in relations of power, as innocent, we cannot begin to walk the path of social justice and to thread our way through the complexities of power relations. So she emphasizes how systems of oppression are interlocking, um, which um, she uses that specifically rather than intersect intersecting, and I, I won't kind of go into the details of that now, but what I think, find really useful is um, with a kind of interlocking the analysis of, of systems of oppression as interlocking is that it really emphasizes a more kind of material analysis of like how different forms of oppression rely on each other and hold each other up. And so, so she says, you know, we begin to understand how, you know, the domestic workers and professional women are produced so that neither exists without the other. They are dependent on each other. So this kind, um, this kind of analysis kind of shifts towards focusing then on complicity um, rather than, than, than innocence and, and encourages what Razak calls a politics of accountability. Um, so this, this politics of accountability then requires, for instance, recognition that advancements of predominantly white and mid middle and upper class women have gained power within um, institutions largely at the expense of other groups of women through the exploitation of their reproductive labor, their marginalization, their political priorities and needs and so on. Um, and I think um, just to bring in um, one other scholar very briefly, I really find um, Barbara Applebaum's work on um, white complicity really useful because she says, we need to shift out of this dynamic. You know, when often people think that when we talk about complicity, we're talking about white guilt, which is not actually the same thing because you're then stuck still in the same dichotomy of like, am I innocent, am I guilty? But actually focusing on complicity helps to shift the question, and this is from Barbara Applebaum, from what can I do to what needs to be done? And that that's a much more useful starting place for thinking about um, the work you need to do to, to kind of address the ways that we're complicit um, in each other's oppression. So, yeah, so, so I'm really arguing that, um, that white feminists must lose their investments in racial innocence and that um, an, an important part of this is to kind of resist the, this constant kind of move, attempt to move on from anti-racist critiques, the erasure of anti-racist critiques from, from feminist histories. Instead, it's crucial that we attend to them closely to understand our complicities in structural racism um, and 
um, yeah, including how discourses of white innocence function to maintain uh, white racial power and how these actually obstruct genuine engagement and commitment to, to anti-racist work. And I think, um, yeah, the very last thing I'm going to say is that um, I want to bring it back to, to kind of this moment and um, maybe to kind of emphasize the harms of liberal whiteness, because sometimes often a kind of critique of this kind of work is that, you know, I'm it's misguided or I'm focusing on trivial issues or that the critiques are misdirected, you know, because these are not the kind of real racists. Um, but I think the extent to which whiteness really destroy this kind of liberal whiteness, this kind of liberal uh, white ignorance destroys the possibilities of solidarity um, can't be underestimated and destroys the possibility of building coalitions and solidarity across difference. And, you know, the way that um, it kind of stops white people from really understanding how racism functions, you know, the harm that's done in kind of destroying trust the lack of empathy and understanding, the kind of slow crush of everyday racism, um, you know, the impact that that has, has really, really can't be underestimated. Um, and I think, you know, particularly in this moment that we're in, like we're in this, uh, you know, racial pandemic, climate capitalist crisis, like it's, it's a really um, hard time and the stakes are really, really high. Um, and we really need to build broad-based anti-racist, anti-capitalist, feminist and disability justice coalitions. And the only way we can do that is through a kind of continuous attention to interlocking oppressions and how we are complicit in each other's oppression, um, including within our own political communities. And that's that's how we build real and kind of sustainable solidarities across difference. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Conway Hall is a registered charity and as such, we are reliant on donations, now more than ever. You can learn more about our origins and history, join our mailing list, make a donation, or even become a member of the Ethical Society by visiting conwayhall.org.uk forward slash donation. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to like and subscribe. Music.